Just a heads up, this episode contains descriptions of alcohol and drug abuse. Please be advised. And f*** it. We're going to f***ing curse a shit ton. Yeah. It's December 1983, and Elizabeth begins to stir in bed. As her eyes flutter open, she turns to her left and finds her 26-year-old daughter, Liza, sitting in a chair beside her. Next to Liza are Elizabeth's two sons, Michael and Christopher. Liza puts a warm hand on her mother's forehead. She's up, she tells everyone. Elizabeth is confused. Where is she and why are her children here? Then Elizabeth's brother approaches the bed. She spots Roddy McDowell, her best friend behind him. All the most important people in her life are here around her bed. Okay, I'm getting big Wizard of Oz vibes here. Yeah, there's no place like home. But Elizabeth sits up and realizes she isn't home. The floors are beige linoleum. The room smells like disinfectant. She recognizes this place. She's been here before. It's Cedar sinai Hospital. Why am I here, she croaks. Michael, her son, leans in. His face is pale, like he hasn't slept in days. He tells her that she was found unconscious in her house and rushed to the hospital. The cause was colitis. Elizabeth nods and thinks, okay, that doesn't sound so bad. Surely there are medications for that. But then, The room stays silent, and Elizabeth sees it. Everyone is holding a piece of paper. Their hands are shaking. Their legs are bouncing. Shit. Yeah, she knows what's going to happen next. Michael starts reading. Mom, we're here because we love you, and we're concerned about your drinking and pill use. One by one, each person in the room reads off their sheet of paper. They wipe away tears and take long gulps of breath between sentences. When they finish, they tell her that there's a car waiting outside for her. Will she go? Not yet, Elizabeth tells them. I'm not ready to say yes or no. Give me two hours alone to decide, please. Once the room's emptied out, she hangs her head and breathes. Her chest feels tight with shame. Is that really how everyone sees her? as some out-of-control addict? She knows that she can stop drinking and taking pills whenever she wants to. It's so sad that they can't see that. She doesn't need to go to rehab. Her chest keeps getting tighter, like someone's pressing down on her rib cage with all their weight. She needs to find something to help her breathe. She spots her jacket and purse on a nearby chair and reaches out for them. What's in her pockets? Anything good? Anything helpful? She pulls the jacket onto her lap. She looks into one pocket. No pills. She looks into the other and starts crying. If she needs pills to make her decision, she already has her answer. From Wondery, I'm Brooke Sifrin. And I'm Arisha Skidmore-Williams. And this is Even the Rich. In our last episode, Elizabeth Taylor followed her heart and tied the knot with Richard Burton. When the two of them are together, everything is more intense. The sex, the fights, the drinking. For a while, it's thrilling. 
But after eight years together, their passion is spiraling into chaos. This is episode four. Hello, my name is Elizabeth and I'm an addict. I want to rewind 10 years back to 1973. Elizabeth has just left Richard. Right. He cheated on her with a co-star. She started attacking extras with broken (laughs) vodka bottles. Yeah, it was not good. But now they're apart again. And each of them is processing the separation very differently. Richard drinks himself to sleep every night. But before the dark washes over him, he pens Elizabeth heartfelt letters about their eternal love. I bet you the impossible bet that when I am on my last bed and nearing the eternal shore, that the words Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Burton will be on my lips. Elizabeth jets off to Hollywood, where she parties with Peter Lawford and Truman Capote. She takes her friends to Disneyland, where they go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and pass a flask of Jack Daniels between them. To be fair, that ride is kind of boring. (laughs) Meanwhile... Richard ponders love and death and the many ways they illuminate each other. He writes, The precious potential of you is the only thing worth living for. After your death, there shall only be one other, and that will be mine. Or I possibly think vice versa. Elizabeth, on the other hand, starts hitting nightclubs. She meets man about town Henry Weinberg. He's a businessman, photographer, and used car salesman. Hmm, he has almost as many jobs as I do. (laughs) He likes to woo the ladies by taking them back to his place where he has a wall-sized aquarium. I mean, they do say the best way to get over someone is to get under someone new. Yeah, that aquarium's not the only thing that's getting wet, if you know what I mean. Oh my God. (laughs) Back in Rome for his next movie, Richard keeps opening magazines and finding his wife's face smiling, laughing, living it up without him. What is life without Elizabeth? But then, on November 28, 1973, Elizabeth's fun comes to an abrupt halt. She wakes up woozy in a hospital. Henry's there. He tells her she just had emergency surgery for an ovarian cyst. It might be malignant, they don't know yet. And that's when Elizabeth asks him to step out for a moment. She picks up the phone and calls Richard. And then she asks him the four words he's longed to hear. Can I come home? That's some good manifesting, Richard. Yeah. Richard's expected on set the next day, but he drops everything to be with Elizabeth. He jumps on the first plane from Rome to LA. When Richard enters Elizabeth's hotel room, he says, hello, Lumpy, how are you feeling? Elizabeth smiles back at him. Hi, Pock face. Okay, did nobody tell them the terms of endearment are supposed to be endearing? Yeah, apparently not. Because the two hug and cry and madly kiss. And Henry reads the room. Wait, Henry's still there? Yeah, he slinks away and drives himself home. In his used car. (laughs) Soon after that, Elizabeth learns the cyst is benign. She and Richard jet off to Mexico, where Richard gifts her with a 38-carat diamond. It's like nothing's changed, and Richard's determined that this time, nothing will. But there's one other thing that hasn't changed. 
Richard's drinking. He'll do anything to keep Elizabeth, except quit. It's not just that alcohol makes him feel more interesting, more witty, more confident, more worthy of Elizabeth's affection. It's also that he craves the stuff. It's an addiction he can feel from his head to his toes. By the time he wraps his film in Rome and sets off to Northern California for his next one, he's up to three bottles of vodka a day, and it shows. The boy who could rattle off entire Shakespeare plays by heart is now a 48-year-old man who needs every line of the script spoon-fed to him. Sometimes, even then, he still can't get his mouth around the words. Richard will wipe away tears of frustration, and the director will throw up his hands. Okay, he'll say, let's try again tomorrow. Richard's own hands shake from morning to night. He has gout, sciatica, fevers, chills. And in this blur of alcohol, pain, and embarrassment, he begins sleeping with other women again. One night, he meets a waitress in town and brings her back to his trailer. Another night, he has sex with a married woman. But that potential affair gets shut down when her husband shows up on set threatening to kill Richard. Okay, what is security like on this set? Seriously. One of his friends remembers Richard turning to him with tears in his eyes, asking him, why do I do it? I love Elizabeth. He wasn't just destroying himself with drink, his friend said. He was destroying himself with guilt. Toward the end of filming, Richard finally has a scene where he doesn't need to remember any dialogue. It's his own death scene. The director looks at Richard, already lying down on the ground, and turns to Richard's makeup artist. Wow, you did an amazing job, he says. He really looks like he's dying. But the makeup artist is like, um, yeah, I haven't touched him. Oh my God. Yeah, the director halts production and sends Richard straight to the hospital where he's given emergency blood transfusions. He's running a fever of 104, he has bronchitis, and his kidneys are two weeks away from shutting down. Over the next six weeks, a team of doctors nurses Richard back to health. But while his kidneys live to see another day, his marriage doesn't. The media's caught wind of his affairs, including his one-night stand with the local waitress. Even worse, at least from Elizabeth's perspective, he reportedly gifted her a $450 ring. Only $450? Did he get it from a gumball <laughs> machine? Yeah, it's all candy, but that's not the point. Jewelry is Elizabeth and Richard's thing. On April 25th, Elizabeth announces that they're officially divorcing. Richard's losing her all over again. Two months later, Elizabeth shows up in a small wooden frame courtroom in Switzerland. She comes in wearing big black sunglasses and she doesn't take them off. The judge asks her the same question he asks every wife. Is it true that living with your husband has become intolerable? Elizabeth answers softly. Yes, life with Richard has become intolerable. She goes on to say that their marriage is over, not her love for him, but their life together. Oof, that's gotta be hard for Richard to hear. He's not even there. He's still too sick to travel, but he's already informed the court that he doesn't want to fight over anything. Whatever Elizabeth wants, Elizabeth gets. Their yacht, their art collection, their houses. He's just gonna focus on getting sober. So Elizabeth takes the yacht. Smart girl. 
And she invites Henry to join her on a cruise across the Mediterranean. Come back, Henry. (laughs) Yeah. Elizabeth's ready to say goodbye to Richard, but she's not ready to say goodbye to her old life. She still wants excitement and joy and love. The way she sees it, Henry can just take Richard's place. And he tries. He buys her jewelry. They dine with Princess Grace in Monaco. They drink hot cocoa in Elizabeth's chalet in Switzerland. But when Elizabeth's friends visit, they notice that the two of them get on more like business partners than lovers. Elizabeth used to call Richard darling and sweet nose and fuckface. Okay, I can get behind fuckface. <laughs> yeah. But Elizabeth only calls Henry, Henry. And when she hears that Richard's dating again, and he's dating a woman with her name, and the other Elizabeth is a Yugoslavian princess, she immediately starts having back spasms. Nurses wheel a hospital bed into her bedroom, and she spends the next few weeks in traction. Richard's moving on without her. In photos, he looks healthier and happier than he has in years. Meanwhile, she's still dating Henry. And if she's honest with herself, he's more of a Mike Wilding than a Mike Todd. More of an Eddie Fisher than a Richard Burton. He's a companion, not a partner. Case in point... Henry even accompanies Elizabeth to Switzerland, where she'll be meeting Richard and their lawyer to split up their remaining assets. But something happens at that meeting. Can you guess what it is? Oh, come on. (laughs) When Elizabeth and Richard see each other, they run. Stop. Right into each other's arms. Just stop. (laughs) They laugh and snot cry. (laughs) They kiss. They've missed each other so much. Henry reads the room again and he flies himself home. This guy. (laughs) I know. But Richard and Elizabeth are going to put the past behind them and start fresh. Richard's finally sober, and Elizabeth is, well, she's sober enough. And she's ready to face facts. Life is intolerable with Richard, but it's far more intolerable without him. Five days later, Richard and Elizabeth fly to South Africa for a family vacation. But instead of going on safari with her ex-husband and kids, Elizabeth finds herself back in another hospital room. Her kids sit on the edge of her bed. Richard's in a small vinyl chair, trying to keep his legs still. Doctors have found a large dark spot on an x-ray of her lungs. She and Richard have been up all night waiting to learn whether it's cancer. And Elizabeth can't read the strange look in Richard's eyes. Since they touched down, they've been on different pages. For Elizabeth, the path forward is so simple. Between the moment she saw Richard step into their lawyer's office and the moment she was in his arms again, she knew they needed to remarry. But Richard keeps laughing it off. They've just gotten back together. Why not enjoy it? Take it slow. Give the ink on their divorce some time to dry. Elizabeth steals another look at Richard. He looks like he's thinking something over something that terrifies him. And that's when the doctor comes in. Her kids look up. Richard's leg stops bouncing. So, Doc, what's the story, he asks. The doctor announces, it's not cancer. That dark spot on the x-ray, it's just scar tissue from when Elizabeth had tuberculosis as a kid. Elizabeth's kids whoop with joy and pile onto their mom. Richard grabs her hand. She expects him to join everyone on the bed, but then he's on his knee. It's time for wedding proposal number. Honestly, I don't know. I'm losing track. What is it? Six? (laughs) 
You're the one who's supposed to know. Yeah, okay, I'm pretty sure it's six. Wedding proposal number six. Will you marry me? Richard asks. Elizabeth says yes. And in her journal, she describes what happens next. We sent everyone out of the room, including the children, and we got stoned. And then Richard gets very, very, very drunk. Ah, fuck. Yeah. It's like they both have this myth around their own love. It's untamable and wild. And I think deep down, both of them are scared it won't work if they're not wild too. Elizabeth and Richard remarry on October 10th, 1975, in front of the Chobe River in Botswana. Elizabeth wears a long green gown and a headdress sewn from feathers. Standing by the river, she looks like Mother Nature herself. Richard looks less ready to meet the moment. He's in white bell-bottoms and a red turtleneck. His face is sweaty and his eyes are pink. As the sun begins to set, they exchange vows of eternal love. The officiant tells them they can kiss and they step toward each other. Richard's breath already smells like gin. He takes Elizabeth in his arms and loses his footing. Whoops, steady there, she laughs. Richard doesn't laugh along. Deep down, he knows he has to pick one, the love of his life or his sobriety. And he's smart enough to know he just made the wrong decision. Can we talk about how cool it is that with Audible, you almost feel like you're watching a movie just by listening to the stories? Especially with Audible's new collection of exclusive thrillers. They feature captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, so the story is really brought to life. I'm excited to listen to None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. It's actually about a podcaster. <gasps> who meets this girl and this girl like tells her about her life and she's like you should feature me in your podcast but then the girl's life is like very strange oh my gosh so why has that not happened to us yet it will it's only a matter of time <laughs> but it sounds so good and juicy yeah and richie says an audible member you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog including best-selling audio titles and new releases in every genre New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash even the rich or text even the rich to 500 500. That's audible.com slash even the rich or text even the rich to 500 500 to get started. So you're trying to eat better, but meal prepping isn't exactly cutting it. Trust me, I've been there, which is why I'm so excited for today's sponsor, Factor. Factor's pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals are delivered right to your door and heat up in just two minutes. Eating better has never been easier. It really hasn't. And you'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more. This is a sponsor that we're like, we're going to probably pay for this on our own when yeah. it runs out. And that's a big testament. Like, the meals are delicious. They I are have not really had a good. meal I don't like from there. Yeah. The idea of being able to put something in the microwave yes. for two minutes and it coming out as if you cooked it. <sighs> yeah. I feel like we're living in the future. We are. And we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Yeah. So head to factormeals.com slash rich50 and use code rich50 to get 50% off. That's code rich50 at factormeals.com slash rich50 to get 50% off. Mama, mama, it's December 1975, two months after Elizabeth and Richard's second wedding. Elizabeth stands on the terrace of her Swiss chateau a glass of Kirsch in hand. She can see a limo approaching in the distance. 
but she ignores it. She takes another sip of Kirsch and looks out to the picture-perfect snow-capped Alps instead. So long as she keeps her eyes on the mountains, she can have some peace and tell herself that everything is gonna be okay. The limo pulls into the driveway. The back door opens and two legs swivel out. Elizabeth already knows who they belong to, Susie Hunt. She's young, tall, and blonde. Everything Elizabeth isn't. Susie slinks up to the chateau in an elegant black gown. Stunning, Elizabeth calls down to Susie. Susie jumps and looks up. She didn't see Elizabeth standing up there like Juliet on her balcony. Susie sheepishly apologizes to Elizabeth, you know, for all that's been going on lately. Elizabeth rolls her eyes and takes a long sip of her drink. When she's done, she looks back down and smiles sweetly. My dear, you'll only last six months with Richard. Susie smiles right back. Well, perhaps you're right, but my, what a six months it shall be. Elizabeth's smile turns into a smirk. Oh, certainly, dear, for all of us. Wait, wait, rewind, pause. Who the fuck is Susie? (laughs) Susie is the soon-to-be ex-wife of James Hunt, the Formula One race car driver. And now, two months into his marriage with Elizabeth, she's Richard's new girlfriend. This guy needs to chill. Yeah, oh, and it gets worse. When he's offered a part on Broadway, he brings Susie to New York with him and leaves Elizabeth behind. Mm. So, less than a year after they tied the knot, Elizabeth and Richard divorce again. What? This is shocking news. I did not see that coming. I know. But for Richard, it's a fresh start. Susie doesn't drink or smoke. She's squeaky clean. And she helps Richard put down the bottle too. When he steps back out onto Broadway, he does something he's never done before. He goes on stage sober. And to his surprise, people like him. Actually, no scratch that, they love him. The New York Times says that Richard's acting has never been better. Ticket lines queue around the block. His audience rises to their feet every night to give him a standing ovation. Richard's learning he can live without Elizabeth. Now it's Elizabeth's turn to figure out how to live life without Richard. It's the summer of 1976. Elizabeth leans against a white picket fence and breathes in the fresh country air. In every direction, green hills roll up to meet her. When her new boyfriend, John Warner, invited her to join him at his ranch in Virginia, she didn't know what to expect. But this is heaven. She imagines herself riding horses across the hills like back in her National Velvet days, taking long walks with her dog past the cow pastures and duck ponds. Now that she's in her 40s, her film career isn't what it used to be and she's ready to move on from Hollywood before it moves on from her. That's one of the things she finds so appealing about John. He isn't a producer or an actor. He's a lawyer and an aspiring politician. He's worlds away from the life she's now leading in LA. It only takes two weekend trips to John's ranch before Elizabeth decides this is her future. Elizabeth has found husband number six. I'm sorry, already? (laughs) As Elizabeth says, when she falls in love, it's always the marrying kind of love. Except with Henry. Wait, who the hell's Henry? (laughs) Oh, Henry. 
<laughs> anyway, Elizabeth's moving forward. She's going to put Richard behind her, put her film career behind her. She's met the future, and his name is John. In January of 1977, Elizabeth and John hit the ground running. A Senate seat has opened up, and he's going to make it his. Or rather, Elizabeth's going to make it his. For the next 23 months, the newlyweds crisscross Virginia, kissing babies, cutting ribbons, and shaking hands. There are some days when Elizabeth shakes so many hands, she actually breaks blood vessels. But she takes cortisone shots for the pain and keeps going because the crowds are huge. And they're not huge for John. They're huge for her. Hang on, I thought she married John to walk dogs and smell manure. (laughs) Yeah, but the farm life will still be there when they're done. And for the first time in her life, her fame is making her feel useful. When she poses for photographs, she's not helping tabloids sell papers. She's getting her husband into the Senate. And her fame does the trick. On November 7th, 1978, John wins the election. Mm, So much for that farm life. Well, John's off to D.C., but Elizabeth stays behind in Virginia. By all accounts, John's not the smartest guy, but he's very hardworking. He barely ever comes back home. So Elizabeth's ready to enjoy the simple life all on her own. She's going to go on those long walks she dreamed about and name some cows. She's going to learn the names of trees and make some jams. Okay, fuck it. Elizabeth hates the simple life. Once the campaign's over, she has no idea what to do with herself. She installs a disco in the farmhouse for visits from Andy Warhol and Liza Minnelli. But that still leaves 360 more days in the year to fill. So she starts drinking more. And she's eating more, too. She stocks her bedroom fridge with chili. That way, another bowl is only ever a couple steps away. I mean, that's a solid life hack. Agree. Occasionally, Elizabeth visits her husband in D.C., but those trips aren't any more fun than her time in Virginia. She hates the cold weather. She doesn't have anything in common with the other senators' wives. And her husband has come up with his own charming little nickname for her, Heifer. Wow, Lumpy and Fuckface are suddenly sounding a lot cuter. Ugh, I know. But Elizabeth's about to get called a whole lot worse. It's 1979 and Elizabeth's back in Virginia. It's just past midnight, and she has the bed to herself, again. So to keep herself company, she's watching The Tonight Show. It's not so bad. Joan Rivers is a guest, and Elizabeth loves Joan. She turns up the volume. Okay, Rachel, are you ready for my best Joan impersonation? Always. All right, here we go. I took her to SeaWorld, and it was so embarrassing. Shamu the whale jumped out of the water and Liz asked if he came with vegetables. Oh my God. That was for the accent. And then also, oh my God, is Joan actually talking about Liz? Yeah, and the jokes keep coming. Ugh. I won't say she's fat, but she had a facelift and there was enough skin left over to make another person. She can shut the fuck up. (laughs) Seriously. Elizabeth turns the TV off. It'd be one thing if she gained this weight and was happy. Then she could say, fuck them. But the thing is, she's not happy. She fucking hates the simple life. She needs a challenge. She needs excitement. She needs an audience. She's learned that about herself. But now, at 48 years old, she has to figure out what to do about it. 
Richard comes to mind. No, please, please no. (laughs) Wait, just hear me out. She remembers how Richard got his career back on track by returning to the stage. But Elizabeth's always been a little scared of the theater. That was Richard's thing. He was the real actor with years of training and a big, deep voice that could reach the rafters. Her voice, by comparison, has always been thin and high. But if she's aging out of film roles, maybe it's time for her to try something new. In September 1980, Elizabeth decides she's going to make her stage debut. And she's going to take a cue from Richard and do it on Broadway. Zero to 60, because she needs a challenge. She partners with a producer, chooses a play, and throws herself into rehearsals. She sits cross-legged on the floor, running lines for hours every day, despite her aching back. Unlike the theater-trained actors she's working with, she's not used to stage directions. So she pencils in notes to herself on every page of the script. Sit here, look up here. She's anxious to get every little thing right. She also starts losing weight and looking more and more like the Elizabeth Taylor her fans remember. She trains her voice until it's big and booming. And all her hard work pays off. The play quickly sells out. On opening night, she gets an endless standing ovation. The play even nabs her a Tony nomination. Hmm, not exactly an ambie, but still pretty cool. Yeah, it's all right. Most importantly, Elizabeth feels like she's moving in the right direction. When she's standing on stage at the end of the night and the audience is cheering, It's like an electric circuit switching on. Her fans give her new energy, and she's ready to live again. It's February 27th, 1982, at the Legends Nightclub in London. The champagne is flowing. Ringo Starr clinks glasses with one of Elizabeth's sons. 120 of Elizabeth's friends and family are here to celebrate her 50th birthday. When Elizabeth makes her grand entrance, everybody's eyes are on her. And it's not just because she's the guest of honor and she's arriving late, or because she's wearing a fabulous white suit with beaded fringe. It's because of who's on her arm. It's not John Warner, it's Richard Burton. This relationship will not (laughs) die. I know. Elizabeth's in the process of divorcing John Warner and Richard's just left Susie Hunt. They're both in surprisingly good places. Elizabeth's a newly minted theater star. Richard is still sober. Over the course of the night, they dance and gossip and flirt. And several months later, they hold a joint press conference. Oh boy. And they announce they're getting back together. Oh, come on. To co-star in a play. Okay. About a divorced couple falling back in love. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Yeah, I knew you'd love that. (laughs) The second week of March, 1983, rehearsals begin in the same theater where Richard once played Hamlet. I'm imagining the vibes a little like the first day of school. You're waiting to see what the new pecking order is. Are you going to be more popular or less popular than last year? Who's going to eat with you in the cafeteria? Everyone's a little nervous. Elizabeth pulls up a chair next to Richard. Close, but not too close. While the director passes out the scripts, she clasps her hands, unclasps them, looks through her purse. She scored a Tony nomination, but the theater is still Richard's home turf. 
And during their relationship, he always said she should stick to making films. I imagine she's still a little sore about that. She opens her purse again and peeks in. Okay, what is in her purse? Oh, just a bottle of Jack Daniels. Elizabeth. If she needs it. But so far, she's doing okay. She shoots a look at Richard, who's going to play her love interest. He's looking better and better now that he's not drinking. And she's been catching him looking at her too. She flips open the script and softly reads her first few lines out loud. I think very few people are completely normal, really, deep down in their private lives. Richard tisks and Elizabeth looks up. What? He raises his eyebrows. You showed up to rehearsals without reading the script? Have you never been in a play before? Always the same Elizabeth. He laughs to himself. And then he raises his hand to beckon his assistant, Sally. The 34-year-old scurries over. She leans in close while he reminds her to pick up his dry cleaning and send out the letters he left on his desk. Okay, they're totally banging. They're totally banging. Elizabeth excuses herself to go to the dressing room and she makes sure to bring her purse. When the play debuts in New York on May 9th, 1983, the reviews are vicious. The Boston Globe describes Elizabeth's performance as a caricature of an actress inside a caricature of Elizabeth Taylor. The real problem though, is the play itself. It's too close to Richard and Elizabeth's own lives. The jokes about divorce and remarriage come off like double entendres. Richard's character's wife is even named Sybil. It's hard to take any of it seriously. But Richard blames Elizabeth for the critic's response. One night after an especially bad performance, Richard brings Elizabeth out to dinner to give her notes. She nods along, fuming, and keeps ordering drinks. The mood gets more and more sour. By the end of the meal, they're both pissed, and Richard's drinking too. Ah, fuck. The next night, a Thursday, Elizabeth's a no-show, so her understudy has to go on. Elizabeth doesn't show up on Friday or Saturday either. Richard is beyond pissed, but he can also play this game. On Monday, Richard disappears, and when he comes back later that week, he has a wedding band on his finger. He's married his assistant, Sally. For the rest of the show's run, Elizabeth packs as many Jack Daniels as she can fit into her dressing room's fridge. When the show finally closes in November, she starts drinking from morning to night. Here she is, once the most famous, glamorous, and highest paid actress in the world. And now who is she? She has no idea. She mixes champagne with codeine and Vicodin with vodka. She calls her best friends, Rock Hudson and Roddy McDowell, to talk, but passes out mid-sentence. She falls asleep to TV reruns of her own old films. She misses Richard. She misses being young. She misses having something to wake up for. She can't go on like this. But as she spirals, she also can't find the exit ramp. All this time, she thought Richard was the problem drinker. He was the one who couldn't function. But here she is, semi-conscious on the couch, blindly groping for the bottle of vodka she thought she left on the coffee table. Was she the problem too? But before she can force herself to answer, she passes out again.
Hey, Richies. For this segment of Even the Rich, we're letting you in on our weekly sleepover brought to you by Drunk Elephant and their new Bora Barrier Repair Cream. Yeah, we've talked about our sleepovers on the show a few times before, and we actually just had a sleepover last night. Still in my sleepover clothes, but when is that not the case? Yeah, honestly, it's my favorite night of the week. So if you want to know what's usually on our checklist, well, first we complain about the annoying stuff we had to do that week. Yeah, and we don't just leave that for our sleepovers. We do that every day. Yeah, and then we usually throw on a rom-com. Always got to have a rom-com. And just berate it endlessly. Yeah, Yeah. like why aren't we in it? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing we always do is talk about skincare. Yeah. It's our favorite subject Mm -hmm. because we're not getting any younger. Amen. And last night we tried out Drunk Elephant's Thickest, Richest Cream Yet, their Bora Barrier Repair Cream that provides a replenishing blend of ceramides, lipids, natural minerals, and potent antioxidant compounds that are clinically proven to provide 24-hour moisture, reduce redness, and firm the skin. So you and I have both been fans of Drunk Elephant for a long time now, and I had not tried the Borer Barrier Repair Cream yet. I've tried many others, and they are all amazing. I gotta say, this cream is, like, so lovely to just, like, massage into your (laughs) skin, and I'm impressed by how incredible it feels. I'm a big fan. Oh, yeah. It's a heavy hitter for chronically dry skin or age-related dryness. And you know I'm not afraid to talk about aging. I personally love that the cultural conversation has finally shifted to embracing aging. We got to do right by our skin as we get older. Absolutely. And this buttery, ultra-rich Bora Barrier Repair Cream is clinically proven to provide 24-hour moisture and increase moisture by 98%. And honestly, one of the best parts is that we can watch trashy TV while the repair cream provides reparative barrier support and soothes the redness. Talk about being (laughs) multitasking queens. That's right. Get rich quick. Discover the new Bora Barrier Repair Cream online or in-store at Sephora or at DrunkElephant.com. Elizabeth wakes up with a start. She takes in the room's bare walls, runs her fingers over the low thread count sheets, and turns to see a stranger sleeping across the room in an identical bed. Where the hell is she? She tries to remember the past 24 hours. Cedar Sinai, the intervention, saying yes to her family. And then it comes back to her. She checked herself into the Betty Ford Clinic. For the next seven weeks, she'll share a room with a stranger, take her meals in the cafeteria, do her own laundry, and participate in group therapy. Her first week in the group, she doesn't say anything, just listens. Her withdrawal is so rough, she can barely keep her eyes open. But every night, she writes in her diary. Arisha, do you want to read an entry? Sure. Okay, this is December 9th, 1983. Today is Friday. I've been here since Monday night, one of the strangest and most frightening nights of my life. Not to mention lonely. But I am not alone. There are people here, just like me, who are suffering, just like me, who hurt inside and out, just like me. It's an experience unlike any other I've known. Okay, that's actually really touching. Yeah, it is. A few days after that diary entry, Elizabeth finally introduces herself in group therapy. Obviously, everyone knows who she is, but they know her as a movie star. She wants to introduce herself as the person she is right now in this moment. So she says, Hello, my name is Elizabeth, and I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. Damn. She lets it all out in those therapy sessions. 
everything she's been through, her childhood at MGM, her first marriage, the suicide attempts, Richard Burton. And then she takes her honesty one step further. She tells the press she's an addict too, and that she's in rehab. No celebrity of her stature has ever done anything like that before. But this is the same woman who refused to deny her affair with Richard back when she was married to Eddie. She couldn't play down the truth then, and she's not gonna hide from the truth now either. It's 1984. Richard Burton opens the front door of the home he shares with his wife, Sally, in Switzerland. He looks down at the stoop and finds his daily paper. Richard brings it inside and begins his morning routine. He pours his coffee and opens up the newspaper. There, he sees a photo of his ex-wife leaving rehab. Richard puts his face closer to the page to get a better look. My God, Elizabeth is glowing. The opposite of how she appeared the last time he saw her, which was drunk and disheveled and not the woman he once fell in love with. Richard calls Elizabeth and tells her how remarkable she looks. Elizabeth appreciates it. She really does. And the two get to talking. It's nice. There's no fighting. Just chatting with someone who knows you better than you know yourself. The calls become a daily routine. Richard admits to his brother that Elizabeth is still his greatest pleasure and that they've never really split up and they never will. They talk about their life, their friends, their marriage, their hard-won sobriety. Sometimes she expresses her curiosity about how different their marriage could have been if they'd had therapy back in the 60s. But Richard just smiles. But then we wouldn't be who we are now, would we? One night in the summer of 1984, they decide they should try to meet up again in person. Over glasses of water, of course. And when they bid their adieus, Richard ends the call with something he hasn't said to Elizabeth in years. He says, goodbye, love. A few days later, Richard dies of a brain hemorrhage. Oh my God. I know, he's only 58 years old. Elizabeth faints when she hears the news. She flies to Switzerland to attend the funeral, but Richard's widow, Sally, begs her to stay away she'll just cause a media circus. So Elizabeth waits a few days to visit Richard's grave. But the moment she steps foot in the cemetery, the paparazzi pounce, flashbulbs pop. Elizabeth's bodyguards open umbrellas and form a protective circle around her. They try to give her whatever privacy they can as she pays her respects. The next morning, Elizabeth, who usually sleeps until noon, wakes up at the crack of dawn. This time, when she steps into the cemetery, the paps are gone. She sits by Richard's grave and listens to the nearby mountain river. She says, it's one of the few occasions ever that Richard and I were alone. When she returns home to LA, there's a letter waiting for her. It's from Richard, postmarked August 2nd, three days before he passed away. Elizabeth opens it and reads. He tells her that home is wherever Elizabeth is and he wants to come home. God, this is so depressing. I know. She places the letter by her bedside and says she'll keep it there until the day she dies. Elizabeth may have just lost the love of her life, but she's gonna keep moving forward. 
seriously, she packs about five lifetimes into the years she has left. She becomes best friends with Michael Jackson. She goes back into rehab. She meets a dude with a mullet named Larry Fortensky and has a $1.5 million wedding at Neverland Ranch. She gets one last final divorce, probably because, as she puts it, after Richard, the men in my life were just there to hold the coat and open the door. Okay, I kind of love that though. Yeah, she stars in a film with an old friend she's been reconnecting with, Debbie Reynolds. Wow, okay. Yeah, and the film's actually co-written by Debbie and Eddie's daughter, Carrie Fisher. She teaches her pet parrot to say, I love diamonds. <laughs> Iconic. And when Elizabeth's diamond buying funds run low, she creates the concept of the celebrity perfume with passion. She follows it up with white diamonds, which will become one of the best-selling fragrances of all time. These have always brought me luck. White diamonds, the intriguing fragrance from Elizabeth Taylor. Since its launch, it's generated more than one and a half billion dollars. To this day, four bottles of the scent are sold every minute. But there's one more chapter of her life that I want to tell you about. How is there more? This woman has lived like 500 lives. I know. It starts with another death. In 1985, Elizabeth watches as her good friend Rock Hudson wastes away from a new mysterious disease. No one really knows anything about the illness, just that it's killing a lot of people most of them gay men. The Reagan administration's been pushing it aside, refusing to put any money into research. Elizabeth is incensed and she's getting angrier by the day. In September, a month before her friend dies, she forms AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research. She becomes the public spokeswoman for AIDS research at a time when having AIDS is still considered shameful and no other celebrity is willing to attach their name to it. But Elizabeth's always been fearless and persistent. On May 9th, 1986, Elizabeth testifies before the U.S. Congress to plead for funding. AIDS can't be fought without government resources. She tells them if they don't change their stance on funding, it won't be the last time they hear from her. Elizabeth says, I will not be ignored and I will not go away. So help me, please. And she keeps her word. Elizabeth comes back to DC many times. She speaks at multiple fundraisers. She appears in endless PSAs. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Elizabeth does more than any other American to change how people talk about AIDS. I have put aside everything else and I have dedicated my life to working for AIDS. It's become her life's work. And it also ends up being what helps her make sense of her life. Here, Arisha, I want you to read this quote from Elizabeth. I think it kind of sums everything up. Sure. Fame means nothing. It stopped having meaning for me many years ago. I thought it was absurd that I was still famous, that people still wanted to look at me or write about me. Then I saw what was happening with AIDS, that nobody was doing anything, but maybe I could. And I did. And why? Because of my ridiculous fame. My name still meant something. People wanted to pay big money to see if I was fat or have violet eyes or whatever. Bring it on, I thought. And I thanked God that my fame and my life had finally made sense. On March 23rd, 2011, 
at the age of 79, Elizabeth dies of heart failure. She has two requests for her funeral, both of which are granted. First, her funeral starts 15 minutes late. She was always late, so why stop now? And second, she's buried with Richard Burton's final love letter. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Even the Rich ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. This is the final episode of our four-part series, The Life and Loves of Elizabeth Taylor. We use many sources when researching our stories, like Vanity Fair, The New York Times, and People Magazine. We especially recommend these books, Furious Love by Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger, Liz by C. David Heyman, and Elizabeth by J. Randy Tarabarelli. I'm Brooke Sifrin. And I'm Arisha Skidmore-Williams. Jean Leitenberg wrote this episode with editing by Lucy Gillespie. Our audio engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Sound design by James Morgan. Kate Young is our associate producer. Our senior producers are Natalie Shisha and Ben Gray. Our executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Jenny Lauer-Beckman, and Marshall Louie. For Wondery. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.